Welcome back. I'm here today again with historian Oliver Charbonneau to talk about the realities, aftermath, consequences of American colonization in the Moro country, Sulu Archipelago, Mindanao, the area that is often officially referred to as Southern Philippines. Welcome back, Professor Charbonneau. Uh, thanks for having me, Joe. I'm really excited because last time we spoke about the goals and context for what could be conflicts, but also colonization of uh, the official Southern Philippines under American rule. Today, we're going to get into what the Moro Wars were, um, and so how events actually played out on the ground. So, a very practical level, Moro Wars is a pretty clear term. What were the Moro Wars? Why did some of this colonization lead to violence? So what are generally referred to uh, as the Moro Wars, although I don't uh, use the term in, in my own book, uh, are a series of conflicts uh, between uh, the United States Army uh, and uh, other security organs within the Philippine colonial state uh, and Muslim groups in the southern Philippines uh, between sort of roughly uh, 1902 and, and 1913. And I should just jump in here. Why don't you use that term? Uh, because I, I feel that the term is, is homogenizing, that it that it talks about a sort of uh, a series of, of fragmented and not always uh, related conflicts and, and um, gives them a sort of unitary identity. Uh, so, for instance, I don't think that it's necessarily fair to say that um, the campaigns around Lake Lanao in 1902, 1903 that, that uh, John Pershing led uh, are the same, you know, uh, conflicts as, as we see in, say, uh, Cotabato against Datu Ali or against sort of some of the, uh, the you know, the later massacres that happen at, at places like Budaho and, and Budbaik-Begzak, uh, which are not even on Mindanao, but in, in uh, you know, uh, on Holo in the, in the Sulu archipelago. And so then, since... The language of this time is important, or describing this is important. How should how should we refer to colonization and the different campaigns waged during this time? I mean, I think we could just talk about it basically in, in terms of, of U.S. colonial conflict uh, in the Southern Philippines, right? I, I'm not I'm not sure that that we need a, a sort of overarching term um, uh, for. Uh, for for this these these series of conflicts that happened, I mean, this is not uh, the same thing as, for example, the Philippine American War, which was um, the United States uh, at war uh, with a sort of very defined, albeit also you know at times internally fragmentary uh, nationalist movement. Uh, this was you know this was something different. Um, so you know, in my book, I, I just sort of shy away from uh, talking about. Sort of the moral wars in, in this overarching way, and 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 really look at um, the specificities. Really look at these sort of specific campaigns. So then, let's get into some of those specific campaigns. Why were there campaigns with military force? Mm -hmm. You know, what are some of the different examples of that, um, and how do those help us understand? the larger American colonization project? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, you know, the first uh, large-scale uh, U.S. military endeavor in the southern Philippines happens, as I mentioned, uh, in 1903 and into 19, or 1902 and into 1903, excuse me, um, uh, around the Lake Lanao region where uh, a, a group of, uh, a Muslim group called the Maranao people uh, live. Uh, and uh, really it's, it's, uh, an attempt by the U.S. colonial state to uh, bring these people into the fold or to bring them under uh, the, the control 
of, of the United States. Um, why most of these campaigns happen, um, if, if we're going to sort of, I guess, uh, think of a, a, a generalized set of explanations for them, um, why most of these campaigns happen is, is, is because the U.S. colonial state uh, is built uh, on the premise of, of eroding uh, various forms of indigenous sovereignty in the southern Philippines, um, of reforming and recreating subject populations uh, in terms of uh, um, you know, uh, education, uh, health care, uh, their judicial systems, uh, labor practices, um, whether or not slavery exists, uh, their political power structures. And as a result of that, uh, they run into conflict with with peoples who um, quite reasonably don't want that to happen. Uh, so in a sense, you know, like like in in almost all colonial context, violence is is inbuilt into the project because the project um, takes on uh, these sort of transformative dimensions. And it comes with these these cultural and, and physical erasures um, that that engender resistance to it. So, how widespread was violence in the Southern Archipelago in Mindanao, and how widespread were American efforts to try and change, maybe erase or edit people's culture? Um, so, in terms of the first part of that question, how widespread was violence? Um, I mean, I think I think we can sort of differentiate uh, between uh, uh, different forms of, of, of violence, albeit um, ones with, that have uh, strikingly similar ends. Uh, in terms of, of large-scale military campaigns, we don't see uh, a, a ton of them. So, you know, in some ways, uh, the term "the moral wars" is, is something of, of a misnomer um, because it it sort of uh, suggests a more convention, conventional conflict that doesn't necessarily. Um, persist throughout the entire period that, that um, my book is looking at. But in terms of, you know, the practice of, of state violence or colonial violence, um, that is persistent. And, and it often sort of uh, appears in the form of uh, uh, small-scale punitive expeditions of, um, um, you know, massacres in, in communities when uh, Americans or uh, Christian Filipino troops are, are looking for um, uh, Moros who've been labeled outlaws or bandits. Um, so there is, a, there is a culture of violence that exists in the Southern Philippines at this time and pers persists throughout the entire colonial period. Um, it's just it, its scale, uh, you know, tends to, to change. In terms of the other part of that question that you asked uh, about how pervasive these these civilizing initiatives, I guess we could call them, were, um, you know, in many ways, and particularly in the first 15 years of American rule, uh, they are the raison d'etre uh, uh, of uh, of U.S. administration. There, they're the they're at least the the rationale that people like Leonard Wood are are giving for being in the Southern Philippines, um, and and especially in the first 10 years or so of the Moro province, I mean, we see um, wide-scale, uh, albeit sometimes underfunded, uh, efforts to uh, extend public school systems, to um, uh, secularize the judiciary, uh, to uh, reform Moros as wage laborers, uh, and and uh, all sorts of other initiatives. So, I mean, they're, they're extensive, is the answer. And you know, you kind of hinted at this. How successful are they? Um, how much do people on these various islands, um, how much do they, let's say, engage in a capitalist society or, you know, 
abolish slavery, um, to name a few small examples, or to name a few examples, um, how extensive are the changes to the islands? I mean, I think I think the the sort of idea of of success or, or failure is is a is a bit loaded, and uh, it depends it depends on sort of what we define as a success, because of course a, a colonial success can uh, can be the exact opposite uh, for the peoples who are who are being uh, colonized. Um, in terms of in terms of a long term American project, I mean, for for uh, Americans who are hoping that that Mindanao in particular would be an indefinite possession of the United States. Uh, and, and indeed, for some who, who hoped it would be a settler colony, a white settler colony, uh, this is uh, an unmitigated failure, right? U.S. U.S. rule does eventually end, and, and these projects are are not a success. Um, in terms of of the 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 islands uh, being integrated into the post-colonial Philippines, uh, it is, I guess, something of a success uh, in that uh, Filipino and not American. Uh, settler colonialism creates these massive demographic changes in the wake of the Second World War uh, that really sort of change um, the the, uh, the the fabric, uh, you know, of of Mindanao in particular. Um, so the the American colonial period, which which acts as this kind of bridge between the late Spanish colonial period and and the independent sultanates before that, and this this um, relatively fraught post-colonial period in, in the independent Philippines, um, it, 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 you know, rather than thinking about it in terms of successes and failures, I, I suppose we could think about it as a, as a transition um, from, um, from sort of earlier autonomous states in the southern Philippines towards um, this more uh, homogenous or homogenizing uh, national uh, Philippine identity after the Second World War. And I'm really interested in the legacy and, you know, this this move, this kind of feeling of, of a transitional period, um, although it's a long transition, it's a big period. But before we get into that, I am curious, are there specific events, um, moments in this colonization project, this quote-unquote civilization? this quote-unquote civilizing project that um, are particularly famous that stand out in this transitionary period? I mean, the, the most, I guess, I guess I, I, I should premise this by saying that there is no sort of one moment uh, in, in the U.S. colonization of uh, the Southern Philippines that is uh, as famous, particularly in U.S. history, because it's, these uh, some of these events are still well known in, in Philippine history. Um, that is as famous as it should be. Um, you know, so for instance, the Budaho massacre that happens in 1906 on the island of Holo, where uh, we see upwards of uh, you know 900 to a thousand um, uh, Tausug uh, Moro uh, men, women, and children uh, killed by U.S. colonial forces and, and allied Christian Filipinos. Um, this you know this does not have the same place in the popular U.S. popular imagination as as say My Lai or Wounded Knee uh, or some of these other sort of more famous massacres. Um, in in many ways, uh, the the U.S. you know um, presence in the Philippines is is largely forgotten in, in the U.S. popular memory, um, uh, and and and, it, and this is this is sort of doubly so for for the Southern Philippines. So yeah, I mean, in terms of of these particular moments, uh, if we're thinking about this in in terms of of public memory, uh, there aren't actually that many at the time, though. Um, you know, how does this period, this colonization project? 
affect Americans? Um, you know, does it turn people away from uh, at least obvious empire building? Um, you know, how does it affect the U.S. public? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is certainly a like you know distinct segment of the U.S. public who has who are who are. Uh, in opposition to empire, and you know, many of whom were in opposition to empire before the Spanish-American War happened, um, and and some of some of these people are are prominent members of U.S. society. So, um, Mark Twain, for instance, uh, writes very eloquently about uh, in the wake of the Budaho massacre uh, about it, uh, although he never publishes this piece. He's afraid it's it's too incendiary. Um, but in terms of a sort of broader general sort of public's view uh, of the Moros in, in the United States, um, we see a sort of, uh, I guess we could call it a racist curiosity, um, by and large, um, from from uh, U.S. newspapers um, uh, and, and also at, at places like the World's Fairs, uh, where um, Moro groups are, are brought over uh, to be part of the human displays there. Uh, and indeed, some of them end up um, visiting uh, uh, President Roosevelt in, in the White House in 1904. Um, beyond this, uh, uh, and, and I show this in my book, um, there are plays about the Sultan of Sulu, uh, George Aid's famous Sultan of Sulu, which runs in in, in New York um, uh, for uh, months, if not years, uh, in, in the opening years of the, the 1900s. Um, we have uh, children's adventure stories that uh, uh, young, particularly young boys, uh, read about U.S. soldiers going and fighting the Moros. Um, uh, there uh, is eventually a movie called The Real Glory uh, that is made where a Moro is the villain uh, in the 1930s. There are radio serials. Uh, so Americans are, are, are generally, you know, insofar as they're you know, paying attention to any foreign people at this time, um, they're interested in the Moros as what they call, uh, quote unquote, uh, their, their colonial wards or their national wards. So as a subject people. Um, but this, of course, is, is tinged with um, the usual strains of, of sort of uh, uh, racial ethnocentrism that, that we see in, in the early 20th century United States. And I was just struck as you're talking about that um, when I was reading Paul Kramer's book on blood of government and thinking about the 1904 World's Fair, because um, you mentioned the certain Moros visiting the White House and going to the World's Fair and this racial racist curiosity. Do you think that views of Moros kind of became a widespread view of colonized people or of uh, Pacific Islands? Did it have an outsized or uh, did it have, a? I guess outsized is the word I'm looking for. Did it have an outsized view? I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Did views of Moros impact greater view? Did views of Moros impact Americans' overall views of non-continental, non-U.S. continental peoples? I think I think it's a tricky question. I think the colonization of the Philippines in general, um, at least for a few years in the early 20th century, made uh, Americans think more about what it meant to be a colonial power uh, at this period. Uh, in terms of, of views on the Moros shaping American ideas about other colonized people elsewhere, um, that's, I mean, that's a dip, bit more difficult to discern. And I think there's sort of two things that we could point to here. Um, 
one is that the Moros uh, in in American sources are constantly compared to uh, other Muslim groups in other colonial contexts. Um, and that suggests not so much that the Americans are uh, using the Moros to understand these other groups and other colonies insofar as they are using the other groups to understand Moros. So they do this, for instance, they, they compare um, uh, Moro warriors to um, uh, the forces of the Mahdi uh, in, in Sudan against General, General Gordon and, and the British colonial forces there. Uh, they talk about the Moros in relation to um, Pashtun uh, tribesmen in the northwest frontier uh, area of the British Raj. Um, so in some ways they're actually they're actually drawing from from other colonial contexts to understand the moros um, the other thing to sort of think about here is that the the way that moro identity is colonially constituted by the united like by by sort of us uh, administrators and the us public um speaks to more of these it's sort of a general reservoir of I ideas and depictions and stereotypes about non-white peoples that are that is circulating in the Western world in the late 19th and early 20th century and, and this you know comes out of a, emerges for a whole range of reasons um, uh, to do with with the sort of hardening of categories of race uh, and this idea that you know people can be um, placed along uh, these specific hierarchies and, and that that is determinant of, of what their kind of civilizational outcomes will be. Uh, and that is not, you know, that is not so much a uniquely American conversation, particularly when we're talking about overseas colonialism, uh, as it is a, a sort of a European and Euro-American uh, conversation that's going on at this time. As you're mentioning the, the kind of ongoing conversation or comparisons between different groups, um, first of all, I'm just curious, what did the Americans feel like they had learned or figured out, you know, when they're comparing um, Moros to other groups, what did they hope to find? It, de it, de it depends on, you know, the American that we're talking about. Um, so in, in the case of certain figures, um, John Park Finley, uh, the district governor of Zamboanga, uh, comes to mind here. Uh, when he's thinking about governing Moros, he's really concerned um, through his his late 19th century sort of progressive lens about not repeating the mistakes that he saw happen uh, with the uh, the race management to use to use a, ter a term from the time uh, of of the American Indian populations on the frontier. Um, so there there are sort of con concerns like that. Okay, um, and so then so then. Jumping a little bit ahead, or maybe a lot ahead in this case, because we're talking about comparisons uh, between different groups and even different time periods, I think this comparison has come up fairly frequently about referring between the quote-unquote moral wars and say the quote-unquote war on terror, um, which is a broad American power-building mm -hmm. project. What comparisons? do you see between these two time periods, if any at all? I mean, I'll start off by saying that I, that I think that um, uh, a lot of the comparisons that have been made uh, are, are uh, overstated uh, and have, have sort of been instrumentalized for, for political ends. And I don't always think that it, uh, it's the most useful thing that we can do to uh, take contexts that are 100 years apart uh, and 
uh, and, and use them for the politics of comparison. At the same time, though, I think that there are there are sort of, I guess, I suppose, productive comparisons that we can make and unproductive ones, uh, both of which I've, I've seen uh, being made. Um, we have to remember that these moral wars, as, as I've already discussed, were, were distinct conflicts that are fought in the southern Philippines in the first two decades of the 20th century, uh, and not the products of a sort of post-World War, uh, you know, United States as global hegemon projecting its power into into the greater Middle East uh, in the wake of, of September the 11th, the attacks of September the 11th. But we do we do see some similarities, I suppose, um, both in in sort of the practice of of asymmetrical violence. Um, by uh, a Western power that that has the technology and uh, resources and logistical ability uh, to apply that violence in ways that that uh, perhaps those who are in opposition to it cannot. Um, we see the rhetoric of freedom bringing underlaid with chauvinist and oftentimes uh, racially uh, essentialist language about supposed Muslim savagery. Um, we see in both cases a fear of uh, supposed uh, Muslim propensity for suicidal violence uh, and using that fear or those anxieties uh, uh, as a legitimation for uh, uh, oftentimes preemptive colonial violence. Um, in the war on terror and in the moral wars, we see um, both, we both, both had cultures of massacre and detention. Uh, and both, you know, and, and I think about this from the perspective of, of the early 20th century, there's both a sort of seeming, you know, seeming endlessness to them, right? Uh, you hear the term the forever wars used in, in relation to, you know, what's what's happened in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq and, and now Syria over the last two decades. Uh, but, you know, really, uh, the, the, the time lapse between uh, 1899 and, and the massacre at Budbagzak is is you know the better part of 15 years. Uh, so th this was also a, a sort of very long series of campaigns and, and a very long uh, colonial occupation too. At the same time, I don't think that we should um, necessarily overstate some of these campaigns. Right? They're, they're, I'm, I'm especially sort of leery. Or sorry. Uh, we should, we, at the same time, I don't think we should overstate some of these comparisons. Um, I'm leery, particularly in the way uh, ways that I've seen uh, the uh, so-called moral wars used um, as learning devices. You know, how can we learn uh, about uh, you know disciplining and ruling over Muslim peoples? Uh, so when I was when I was first researching this project, I was in the Library of Cong Congress, and I I had requested a whole bunch of sort of boxes of documents from Leonard Wood and, and other figures who were involved in the Moro province. And uh, he said, the last time I saw this, you know, this many archival boxes be, be taken out uh, on the Southern Philippines was guys from the Pentagon coming after, after September 11th as they were preparing to uh, invade uh, Afghanistan, you know, with the idea that um, this, this, this conflict with very, very sort of culturally, religiously, uh, linguistically, geographically, uh, you know, distinct peoples, you know, could teach them something about uh, the war they were about to enact in, in Central Asia, uh, you know, over a over hundred years later, or nearly a hundred years later, I guess, in, in, in some cases. Um, so I think that, that we should sort of be careful when, when applying that. And I think, you know, some of the reasons why this uh, this particular story or this set of stories has surfaced in the U.S. popular imagination uh, in the last uh, 10 or 15 years uh, have to do with very sort of contemporary fixations uh, on uh, the idea of Islamic terrorism. And, and certainly um, the reason why we saw 
um, uh, uh, Donald Trump make reference to John Pershing and the, and the execution of, uh, of what he called Muslim terrorists in the southern Philippines, although he didn't directly talk about the southern Philippines. I mean, why that comes up is because of, 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 of um, contemporary uh, ideas about Islam and the United States relationship with Islam. So I think I think it's it's important to be careful how we contextualize and compare uh, these these two things. And as you were talking, I mean that's an incredible uh, that that I, if I've been researching that, that would have stopped me in my tracks for a moment. Um, so that's an, an like an incredible archival anecdote. Um, but you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking. You mentioned earlier Americans in the so-called Moro Wars talking or trying to learn from British imperialism. Mm -hmm. And that feels almost similar to me of, you know, um, Americans learning from past Americans in a kind of uh, misguided, mm -hmm. let's say, way that they did previously as well. Um, and so... So what I'm thinking about is not to what I'm thinking about is how we learn effectively from this time period. You know, what should we take away from this period of colonization? Is there anything useful for us today, if not maybe the strategic ends of the war on terror, but what can we take away in a tangible um more appropriate context? That's a that's a really, really good question, and I think uh, probably one that, that deserves uh, a more complex answer than than I'm I'm going to give a whole PhD. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, as as I said, I'm skeptical of of this idea of learning because I I so often see it sort of in, instrumentalized uh, towards uh, military ends and, and not always um, not always in, uh, for the best. Um, uh, you know, in terms of, I guess, what we can what we can take away from this. I was I was very careful in my book, um, being you know the historian that I am, to to not try to um, batter people over the head with with too many conclusions about what they need to to think about this. Um, nevertheless, I I think that that we can use it um, to think about the, the troubled relationship. That the United States has had with Islamic societies that uh, you know goes back to the dawn of, of uh, the 20th century, but really you know goes goes back well before this too, uh, you know to the really to the Barbary Wars, um, and to sort of contextualize this um, within within a longer history uh, of U.S. colonial relationships uh, with with Muslim groups, uh, you know, not just in Southeast Asia, as, as is the case here, uh, but, but also, uh, you know, but also across the, the Islamic world. Um, I think also this is, this is you know, the story of, of what happens in Muslim Mindanao and the Sulu archipelago uh, is one that is, has largely been forgotten in, in U.S. popular memory and, and certainly in U.S. popular histories that have been written even about uh, the Philippine-American War. Uh, and it's something that, that needs to be recovered because there are uh, distinct episodes uh, in, in, that, in those histories that, that um, challenge us to think about um, the U.S. United States relationship with the world and how it sort of um, 
exercises its power in in far off distant places. You know, particularly when we uh, get to massacres like like what happened at Budaho. Um, you know, much like like Wounded Knee has occasioned uh, plenty of soul searching within the United States. Um, you know, not always uh, necessarily uh, uh, effective soul searching or long lasting soul searching, but soul searching nevertheless. I think you know, in instances like Budahos, it should also occasion that kind of reflection. And I do think that you know, even if we can't compare proverbial apples to oranges, we can't just compare one um, distinct or specific situation to another. It still is a learning experience of, um, as an American, from my point of view, you know, how to think about a quote unquote forever war, how to think about um, a period of more of serious moral rot or, or anguish or something along those lines. Um, so it's an incredibly interesting period, um, you know, for me to think about and for me to think about what people thought 100 years ago. As we wrap up now, was there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to talk about or uh, particularly telling um, Particular, or were there particularly telling moments, nuggets that you wanted to share? I suppose you know something that that I, I might want to to point out uh, is that uh, the history that that I discuss in the book, and I and I very sort of consciously made the choice to to sort of break off the book's narrative uh, at the Second World War. But the history that I tell in the book is, like many histories, still very much ongoing. Um, the the um, you know uh, the, the 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 community of Marawi, which during the American period was called Don Salon and, and was a centrally planned community by U.S. colonial authorities, um, was basically just effectively wiped off the face of the earth uh, by uh, the Philippine military in in in, in a conflict with ISIS affiliated fighters there uh, in 2017. Um, so these these sort of anti-state violence that I write about uh, in the early 20th century, uh, it is inherited um, uh, uh, in in the independent Philippines and, and continues. I mean, it, there you know it's not a one-to-one comparison, uh, but um, this is a story that that is that is not over yet, right? The the Southern Philippines remains. Um, uh, imperfectly integrated into a, a, a larger, uh, in many ways, a larger colonial state uh, that that uh, masquerades as a nation state. And I think that is a really good place to leave things. We've done a great job of appropriately, I'd say, connecting the past to the present or understanding some of what those connections truly mean. So before we go, first of all, thank you, Oliver. Uh, if people liked listening to you or like your thoughts on the on the material, where can they find more work by you? Um, so, I mean, first and foremost, they can they can grab my book, which has just come out with Cornell University Press, uh, and that's called Civilizational Imperatives, Americans, Moros, and the Colonial War. Uh, beyond that, if you're keen to go diving into uh, academic journals, uh, I have pieces uh, in Diplomatic History, uh, the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, uh, and uh, another piece forthcoming in Modern American History, uh, all of which deal with, with, with aspects of the histories that, that I've discussed today. If you liked hearing from me, please subscribe, rate, review this show on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get discovered and keep talking with amazing guests. Thanks so much. See you next week.